0: When I'm in my darkest moments, actually, and I have the most pain, I sometimes close my eyes and I bring myself back to that place when I found that I had cancer, because it felt like this elevated moment where all of a sudden, things were so clear. And I, realized, I really realized right then and there what was important and what wasn't.
1: I'm Tanya, and you are listening to Human and Holy, a podcast where we discuss the deepest parts of Torah, not just as scholars, but also as human beings. If you are listening to this and love Human and Holy, may I invite you to sponsor an episode of the podcast? Human and Holy is a nonprofit, which means your donation is tax deductible and goes directly to Bringing this podcast into the world every single week, covering all the production costs that go into bringing this from concept to actuality. To sponsor an episode, visit humanandholy.com slash sponsor or email us at info at humanandholy.com. To become a monthly supporter of the podcast, visit patreon.com slash or where you can give as little as $1 a month to bring Hasidus into the world in a human and holy way. Today, we have an interview with Amanda Spiro from Montreal, Canada. Amanda is a cancer survivor who travels the world, sharing her story of returning to Judaism. She is also a Kala educator and is very involved in outreach in Montreal, If you would like to find out more about Amanda or contact her, you can find the links to do that in the show notes. Today, in honor of Elo, join us for one woman's story back to her soul and to the lessons that she lives with to this day.
0: My name is Amanda Spiro, and I am a mother of three beautiful children and a wife And I have a story that I travel the world sharing. I'm a cancer survivor and I wasn't always religious. So that's a big part of my story that I share with the world, whoever wants to listen to me. (laughs) I love
1: that. (laughs) (laughs) If you want to listen, I will share.
0: (laughs) Yes, exactly.
1: (laughs) Well, I want to listen and I'm so excited that you're going to be sharing with us today. If you could Give us a little bit of the backstory. Tell us about your upbringing. What's your origin story before we get into where you are today and like what that process has been? For sure.
0: So, that's such a big part of it. So, I didn't grow up observant. I grew up in a traditional home in Montreal. I didn't go to Jewish school. I didn't really have so much of a Jewish upbringing. But I did grow up going to a modern Orthodox shul. I did celebrate all the holidays, but I always say, like if someone went to stop me on the street and say to me, you're fasting, why? Why did Jews fast? I would have zero clue. I really just did it because my mother told me to do so. <laughs> I grew up, bruch in a very well-to-do home. I really had everything I possibly could imagine and want, plus more. I had it all. I always say, on paper, I had everything. But from a young age, I always felt like something was missing in my life. I was a party girl. I loved to party. I had tons of friends. I went to the best of schools and summer camps. I took luxurious family vacations. I traveled a lot. I wined and dined, really like I did it all. And I was very close with my older brother. I only had one brother. So we were like a very tight-knit family. We were all very, very close. And I grew up, my mother traveled a lot for business. So, you know, people always say to me, because I travel a lot now for speaking and people are like, oh my God, it must be so difficult. How do you leave your children?
1: And it's like, that's what I was raised doing, you know? So I'm I'm very used to it. I'm curious because you said that like, you felt like you had everything, but you felt like something was missing. Mm-hmm. What was that thing and how did you describe it to yourself then as a kid growing up in this environment?
0: Right. So... For so long, I remember going to my mother at times and just saying to my mom, like, mom, I I don't know what it is. Like, I just feel like something's missing or I feel like I'm upset. Like sometimes it came out in sadness and it wasn't all the time. I really was this happy-go-lucky girl, but I had these moments where I was very deep and I would think about things and internalize things. I had so, so many questions and I had zero answers. And there was even periods of time where I felt like something was wrong with me. Like no one talks like this. No one thinks about these things. I almost felt like I was weird. And it wasn't something I spoke about with people. It was just something I went to sleep at night feeling like something's missing. I also just felt there has to be more to life than what I was living, right? My parents were amazing. And I really did grow up in a very warm home. However, my parents worked extremely hard. Like I mentioned, my mom traveled a lot. My father worked very hard. Sometimes he wasn't even home for dinner. Sometimes we went on vacation and he came Mm -hmm. later or he wasn't even able to come. And there was this pressure, I don't think my mother realized it at the time, but there was this pressure of like, life is hard. You got to make it. You got to work really Mm -hmm. hard. You got to do well in school. So you get into a good college. So you get into a good university. And it was always this pressure. And to be very honest, I wasn't the best student. And I always felt like, oh my goodness, if I don't do super well, then what? What's my purpose? What am I going to do? We would always Mm -hmm. make jokes like, Amanda, just marry a rich guy. You'll be fine. So I just always felt this pressure. Life was very hard at times, you know, when I actually sat down and thought about it and I felt very anxious and I just always felt like Mm -hmm. life was just passing us by. I felt like everyone was these energizer bunnies and they just kept going and going. And I was like, there has to be more to this. There has to be more to life than what I'm living. So it was a struggle, but I kind of just silence that voice at times, because I didn't have answers. And obviously my mother wasn't so worried about me. You know, it's not like I went for help or, you know, at that time, no one really spoke about these things. You know, we always talk about like mental health now and awareness. So I just kind of went on and I was busy. And when I was busy, I didn't think of these things. It was like quiet at night. I remember Mm -hmm. there'd be nights where I would just stay up so late, literally staring at the ceiling. There was no phones then, you know, there was nothing. And I would just think and think and think to the point, like I'd make myself sick and sometimes not fall asleep.
1: Would you describe it as a spiritual yearning or a mental health struggle?
0: No, definitely a spiritual yearning. Like I knew there was answers. I felt it. And I have an older brother who's extremely wise. He's like a partner at a law firm. He's always been very spiritual. He's not from, but when I share my story, he was so much a part of that story. We would have these like serious, long, inspirational conversations. And at the time, my brother was reading all these books, which obviously I threw out now. But- these very like deep books, you know, the Dalai Lama and this, and all these very spiritual texts. And I read them and I kind of always felt like, yeah, of course there is something else. There's this higher power, but I didn't know necessarily Mm. know what that was. And to be honest, you know, at the time I was waitressing at a restaurant and I actually waitressed Mm -hmm. in a very Hasidic area, downtown Montreal and Park Avenue where like the bells are and Satmar. And I remember seeing them all and I just didn't associate myself like that. you know. And I remember my bosses who were Greek used to say to me like, oh, they're Jewish like you. And I was like, no, 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 no. They're completely different. I wasn't interested. I didn't know anything. And anytime I would go to shul, it wasn't inspirational. They were talking about politics. They were talking about this. It was a fashion show. So I definitely didn't get anything out of that. I was actually kicked out of Jewish school. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there goes wow. that Jewish education. So. I never got answers until I got my answers, until I realized what I was missing as a young girl, which was a relationship with God. That's what I was yearning for. And it was so painful not having that relationship.
1: When did you begin to really honor and explore that yearning that you were feeling? Was there something that sparked it?
0: Absolutely. So, so much of my story is divine providence. I always say, I am so blessed Hashem just gave me everything on a silver platter. Like one thing led to the next, which led to the next. So I would say my story really began when I was 17 years old and my best friend passed away in a car accident. And already, Mm. like I mentioned, life felt hard. Things didn't make sense. I couldn't understand anything that was going on in the world. And then my best friend passed away and she was actually the only one that I'd have these conversations with. She herself obviously was a very special soul. And so when she passed away, I was lost, and I had so much pain, and I was in deep grief. And for a while, I was going through a very hard time, and at the time, I went to go see every single professional out there, psychologists and social workers and guidance counselors, you name it. And nobody even began to scratch the surface of what happened. No one said anything comforting until I went on the March of Living and I met Rabbi Penny Ganevish. So he was the spiritual guide on our trip and his job was really to just go around and make sure that everyone was dealing with the very difficult things we were witnessing firsthand in Poland. So I opened my heart to him. It was the first time I ever spoke with a rabbi before, but he was so cool and so normal. And I shared with him what I was going through. In addition to sharing with him, you know, what we were experiencing in Poland and, and he shared with me an experience he went through, a loss. And that was my Oprah aha moment. That's really when I start to see the world very, very differently. And I remember at the time, just like listening to him speak and everything he said, I was like, wow, wow. And I remember thinking, wow, if I thought of life like this, life would be so much easier because life did feel really hard and very complicated. And he just seemed so grounded and everything just made sense to him. Even in his pain, he had answers. And for the first time, I didn't look at the death of my friend as something tragic. For so long, that's all people would go around saying. It's so sad, it's so tragic, it's so unfair. And that was so painful, that's not comforting. And at the same time, people knew we were so close, we were sisters. We went to the same school, we lived around the corner from each other. I was like a Rahmanis case in a sense, like, oh my God, you were her best friend. That must be so hard. And it was so hard. And all of a sudden, he's talking about death and he's talking about grieving and he's talking about the soul. I never spoke about the soul before. That never came up. And so he started talking about the soul and how the soul lives on and that everyone has a purpose and everyone has a mission. And she obviously was a very special soul and she was needed in the upper worlds. And that was just so comforting to me. That really just like changed everything for me. And in addition to that, he kind of explained to me and introduced me to the world of Hasidus, you know, just seeing things so differently. Mm. You know, all these cliches that so many people speak about that I read about in all these books, it felt very real coming out of his mouth, you know, just Mm. that everything's for a reason. And, you know, the greatest darkness brings the greatest light and life is eternal, like all these concepts. And I remember at the time, my mind was swimming. It was a lot of information and it took me a long time to internalize it all. But I remember just thinking, wow, I need to learn more. I need to connect more to this rabbi. He was the only thing that comforted me after a couple of years. And so I stayed in touch with him and rebuilt a very strong, close relationship. And I met his entire family and they're a huge family and they're all so wise and they have so much to share. And that was really the first step of the journey of just connecting to this Chabad rabbi.
1: And it was the first time that the language of the soul had come into your grief journey. Like Absolutely. it was always just about the finality of the death. And then suddenly it was also about her soul and exactly her soul's mission and exactly. your soul too. Exactly. How did that segue into you beginning your journey to Judaism? Why didn't it stop there with the grief of your friend and the comfort that it brought you in that way?
0: So I always say my story happened very slowly and I'm so grateful it did. And actually there were times that Rabbi Pinney would like stop me and he's like, you're moving too quick. And I always tell people like for something to really be long lasting, you really have to internalize it. And to internalize these big concepts, it takes time. And so at the same time, I always say how naive I was and like misinformed about Judaism. Like I didn't even know that someone could become religious, really. And he never put pressure on me ever. He just showed me the beauty, him and his wife and his family of all the mitzvahs. And I remember thinking at the time, like anything I would learn, I'd be like, wow, that's so beautiful. Wow. That makes so much sense. But I didn't know that I could become religious. And then I guess what really changed is years later, I was diagnosed with cancer. And oh. my first intuition was, I'm going to call Rabbi Penny. He's going to get it. I was really worried. I remember the hardest part of the whole diagnosis was, what are people going to say to me? <laughs> first, I lost my best friend just a couple years ago. And now I have cancer. <laughs> They're really going to think I'm like a Rachmanus case, you know? And I knew he would just have the words because he had it last time. It was so comforting. And so I reached out to him. And of course, he was very comforting and then he invited me to stay with his family for the weekend at their cottage for Shabbos, which was something I never did before. I used to go there for Shabbos all the time. I became a friend of theirs. I never looked at them like, oh, they're religious and I'm not. They just happen to be friends. They're amazing cooks, amazing environment. I really enjoyed going there. And I always say I had the best of both worlds because they were only in Montreal in the winter. In the summer, they would go to their cottage. Mm. So I'd always go in the winter and Shabbos starts really early. So I'd go there and I'd like enjoy a beautiful, inspiring, delicious Shabbos dinner. And then I remember going home, taking a nap, (laughs) waking up, getting dressed, having friends over, drinks, hitting up the clubs, going out. Like I had a whole other life. I was basically living two lives without Mm -hmm. even realizing it. So I always said like I had the best of both worlds. And then I stayed with him for Shabbos after I got sick. And this time it was at their cottage. So I slept there. And that was my first real Shabbos. And I've kept Shabbos ever since. (laughs) And it was really just an amazing, amazing Shabbos. It was also a very overwhelming time for me where everyone just started finding out about my diagnosis. I was just about to start treatment. You know, it was so nice, but there was so much, like people were reaching out and Facebook messages. I always say, like, I could have opened up a florist, like my house was filled with flowers. Every day people were just dropping Mm. off flowers and it was overwhelming till this day, I'm so touched by everyone, but it was a lot. And I just remember getting away in nature on Shabbos. No one could reach out to me. I turned off my phone and I really experienced what Shabbos was. And it was totally unplugging and connecting to something deeper. And it was such a comfort to me until this day. Shabbos is so much part of my healing. And so that was really my first Shabbos. And then fast forward, I just kept learning more. And wanting to take on more and I would take something on and then I'd take something else on. But the truth is everything just kind of happened on its own, you know, from I started wearing a wig, for example, obviously, right? I lost, I mean, not obviously, but I lost all my hair undergoing serious treatment and I was completely bald. And so I was introduced to the world of wigs, right? And I met a Shetelmacher who till this day is my friend and I learned about the power of why Jewish women covered their hair. You know, I was never interested before. I don't even think I knew that Jewish women covered their hair until I had to wear a wig and realize this was something that Jewish women, religious women do. And I've always been a person that was so curious. And I always say I have no shame. I ask any questions. You know, it's like I look back and I used to sit at Penny's family with all his little kids and I would just ask all these questions. And I look back now, I'm like, I hope I said nothing inappropriate, but I just said whatever. And I'm so grateful <laughs> in a sense that I had no filter then. Because I just asked away Mm -hmm. and I got all my answers and I'm still asking away, you know, not at a Shabbos table with little kids around, but I'm always challenging and trying to figure out so many different things and trying to make sense of life because life is sometimes complicated and sometimes hard. But I genuinely believe that all the wisdom is in the Torah. All the answers are there. We just have to search more and more to find it.
1: How old were you when this was going on, when you were diagnosed and you kept Shabbos for the first time and began to really connect to it in a practical way?
0: I was 21 years old when I was diagnosed. I was actually misdiagnosed a couple months earlier, and that was a very difficult period in time. So I always say when I was diagnosed officially, there was a little bit of a release you know, and like I was saying from the beginning of my journey, that I always felt like this energizer bunny. And now all of a sudden I remember going to the doctor when he diagnosed me. And you know, he told me what would be happening for the next year, you know, all the treatments, what was involved, what I had to do, what I had to stay away from. And I remember him also saying to me, You need to take off school. I was in university at the time, I was studying psychology. And he said, You're gonna need to rest and you're gonna take care of yourself. And I remember feeling like, wow, amazing. (laughs) You know, I was so relieved. And I feel like it was a period of time where I had that precious moment to reflect, right? Like if I wouldn't have had my diagnosis, I would never have stopped. I would have just been in that crazy hamster wheel, just going, going, going. And so I had a lot of time to really think and to really explore. I read a lot of books during this time. I would often go to pennies for Shabbos when I felt better in between my treatments. And I would just sit in his library and his study and I would just pick up books and read and read and read. And I remember it like blew my mind every time. You know, I was just so intrigued by it all. But, you know, I loved Shabbos so much. And at the time, I always like describe it a little bit like COVID. You know, my immune system was extremely low. I wasn't allowed to touch Mm -hmm. anyone at the time. I often had to wear a mask. So COVID was very easy for me because I was used to it. I was like in quarantine in a sense. You know, there were times that I just had to stay home. And so Shabbos was the best thing, but I didn't have that inner conflict of going out. I used to go out all the time. I would never miss a party and there's parties all the time. So I would go to sleep super early and my mother was super supportive. And she said, you enjoyed Shabbos so much. Let's make Shabbos the following week. And she's like, invite whoever you wanted. My mother always loved to entertain. And she was always annoyed with me that I didn't want to stay home for Friday night dinner. You know, she wanted to have that. And I always wanted to just go and be with friends and be out. And so kind of this new tradition began in her home, which we started keeping Shabbos to the extent of what we knew. And every week, it was like a party mm-hmm. in my home. Every week, we'd invite new people and my mom would make delicious dishes And it was something I really looked forward to. And that was what I did throughout the whole time that I was undergoing my treatment. So Shabbos definitely was a big part of this whole journey. And then things just kept happening very slowly. Like I said, I started wearing a wig. And I also, at the time, I always make a joke that I was more religious than a rabbi, as I no longer touched both men or women, you know? And my <laughs> IV pole was my boyfriend, really. You know, he was the only person I was allowed to touch. I would pull him around with me wherever I went in the hospital. And I met my husband, Aaron, during this period of time. And I always say there's no such thing as coincidences. We actually met at a wedding. And during my treatments, a friend mentioned to me that Aaron was planning to go to Israel, and so was I. And he was also becoming more interested in Judaism. And so, we started to get in touch and we spoke back and forth. We met each other at a wedding. We spent the whole night talking about our mutual plans to go to Israel. We both came home. We both got accepted to Israel. But my point is, is that we were Shomer Nagiyah by default because we weren't allowed to touch. Mm. And again, divine providence, I realized how my relationship with him was different from any other one, any other one I had in the past. Again, it was based on a soul level you know? And again, it was the soul that I connected to. And when I was sick, I also was really forced to go inwards because my identity was so much part of my beauty. I was a model. I had tons of boyfriends. It was always very important to me the way I looked and everything had to be perfect. And then all of a sudden, nothing was perfect. I gained all this weight. I was bloated. I was on heavy duty steroids, chemotherapy. I wasn't even recognizable. And I was forced to look within and find true beauty. And that true beauty was connecting to my neshama. So during this period of time, I was introduced to the soul once again, and I really connected to it. And that's what helped me throughout this whole time.
1: The belief that you were more than just a body and that your life had more purpose than what you had previously
0: Exactly. And to. I felt throughout this whole journey that there was a reason I was going through this. And it became very obvious from the get-go when I was going through my treatment. I remember at the beginning, I started treatment. I was actually treated in a very rundown hospital. And the reason was because I was misdiagnosed in a hospital. I didn't want to be treated there. And we found an amazing doctor. It just happened to not be such an amazing hospital. And I remember going to my treatments, and I remember seeing people stare at the ceiling. They had nothing. It was a lot of poverty And I was a spoiled girl that people were coming and bringing me food and tons of visitors. And I was so grateful and so blessed. And I remember my mother's friend dropped off a DVD player for me at the time. And every single time I was in treatment, because I was there for hours, I would sit there for eight hours minimum. And I was watching video after video, and I was like so immersed in the show, and it just took me away from the pain. And no one else had that. And I really felt so bad about it. And I was telling my mother's friend, I'm like, I don't think you realize, but this gift is amazing. It's helped me so much during treatments. And she said to me, Amanda, why don't we get a gift for every single person in the hospital? Let's raise the funds. And that was the beginning of my charity, Amanda's Live, Laugh and Learn, that I started when I was ill. And again, throughout the whole time I was sick... I was busy. I was working towards helping other patients in the hospital where I was treated. And that was huge for me. And again, you learn, you know, the Rebbe spoke so much about this, of just doing, taking action, even when you're in the darkest place and helping others. And by helping others, you receive so much more in return. And I felt it so much when I was sick that I was trying to help other people and kind of get out of myself and realize that there's always worse. And I really was blessed that even though I was so sick, I had a tremendous amount of support. And I also knew, thank God, that I was going to be well, so I had a lot of hope.
1: I noticed how when you mentioned grieving your friend, you were speaking about how what was so comforting to you in Rabbi Ginevish's words was that there were answers and that there was meaning and purpose to the suffering that you were experiencing. I'm just wondering how that translated when you yourself were going through this process. Were those answers able to be as comforting for you throughout the physical pain? And what did that actually look like? Wow.
0: So the truth is like whenever I share my story and I look back, I always say it was such a beautiful time in my life, as hard as it was. I really try not so hard to think of the pain that I endured because it was very painful, of course, you know? And if I really close my eyes and think about what I went through, it was extremely hard. And I think in that actual painful moments, when I was being treated, when I had surgery, when I was recovering, I just knew that I had to do this, that it was part of my journey and that I would get through this. And I always felt that I'd come out so much stronger. I remember just when I was ill, just, you know, we speak so much about manifesting. I didn't even know that word back then, but I was manifesting. Like I was thinking of this like future ahead of me with all the tools that I learned and everything, all the inspiration. And I knew that when I was done on my treatments that I wanted to live my life differently. And I was so excited. I was planning on going to Israel. I was keeping Shabbos. I knew that I wanted to marry someone that was Shomer Shabbos. And I, I didn't know one person that was Shomer Shabbos. So I was so excited to find that person. Like everything just seems so exciting, right? When you're really on the bottom, everything's so exciting. And I was really trying to just look up and to plan and to dream of a better tomorrow. And again, throughout the whole illness, so much of what Penny shared with me and he continued to share with me, you know, he was like my rabbi. He just gave me that inspiration and he really made me feel that this was for a reason. And I felt it. I really felt it. And even people around me that weren't religious felt it. I remember my brother at the time he was away. He was in Europe and he came home the second he found out. And I remember he said to me, Amanda, you have two options. He said, you could be bitter or you could be better. And I remember then and there thinking, I could be positive or I could be negative. And being negative, what's that going to do? And I remember thinking, if I have a positive mindset, this is going to be so much easier because this is a long journey. It's not like a week or a day. This is over a year. This is not being in school, not being in social events, being a lot on my own. I had a lot of alone time. But it was such a gift. Being alone in your thoughts and really going deep and inwards and realizing what you really want. I didn't really know what I wanted in life. And I might not have gone this route if I would never have gone through what I went through. So I look back and I always say it's a gift as hard as it is. And I always feel whenever I go through anything in life that every challenge is really an opportunity for growth. And again, the more I learned and the more I'm learning, everything just seems to make sense where before nothing made sense, right? Like we know we're in Gullus. We know life is hard. So every time life gets hard or I have a moment, it's normal. Life isn't meant to be easy. It's like we have this expectation that life is supposed to be easy. So every time it doesn't go our way, we're so frustrated. We find it so hard, but really we're in a hard time. And the only way to get through this hard time is to connect to our soul, to our secure sense of self, and to really tap in and to build that strong relationship with ourselves and to Hashem. And that's what really gives us the strength to do what we need to do. And again, being a Lubavitcher, we really feel like we're on a mission. And that's so much why I chose Lubavitch. You know, people always ask me, like, why did you choose Lubavitch, right? Because as a Belchiva, you could choose whatever you want, you know? And... I love that idea, that idea of being there for others. And, you know, growing up, my mother always raised me to do good. And it almost was innate. And when I became from and knew that this is something we do, and this is a mitzvah, it felt in total alignment with who I am. And I don't know, till this day, you know, just this mission, being charged with this mission to just do whatever we can to bring people closer to finding themselves and to connecting to their soul and building a relationship with God, because that's really it. I really believe that's the answer to anything. No matter what you're going through, when you're fully tapped in, life is so much easier because you trust everything's for a reason. As cliche as it sounds, it's so true. Anything that you go through, you're meant to go through it. And you could go through it so much easier knowing that it's meant to go through you. It's just how you're going to go through it
1: and how you're going to deal with it. And that's going to determine how you're going to feel. How did that awareness of your soul pan out post-healing? Once you were out of the woods, you were out of that daily experience of pain, of introspection, of pausing everything else in your life. You mentioned that you loved partying and you loved going out and suddenly you were sitting there for hours every day. So that completely transformed the way that you were looking at your life. What was the integration into your life post-healing?
0: So again, throughout my whole journey of not being well, I knew it was temporary, right? Like the second I met the doctor, he broke it down for me and he told me that it was going to be, you know, six months of chemotherapy, this many months of radiation, surgery, recovery. So I knew it was all temporary. And the truth is the hardest part was actually going back into reality. And the reason for that was because in a sense, I got so comfortable in this life. It became my new identity right? And I had zero responsibilities. I really was a queen. I was living on my own before I was diagnosed, downtown. And then I moved back home. And my mother really treated me like gold. I had no worries, no financial. I wasn't working, nothing. And I also was in it, right? Like I was kind of going through the motions. It happened very quickly. When I was diagnosed because I was misdiagnosed, my cancer was extremely large, my tumor, my tumor. And right away, two days later, I had surgery, recovered and started the treatments right away. I didn't even have time to think about it all. I was just in it. And I think once it was all done, it kind of hit me, you know, like hard, like, whoa, what's happening right now? And the second it hit me, I left. I went to Israel. I was even treated in Israel, like seen in Israel afterwards. And Israel was the next part of my healing and just being there and in such a, holy environment. And again, I connected to my soul by learning. I learned a lot when I was there. I went to seminary. I went to Mayanot. I went to Machan Alta. I spoke with so many different people. I was taking a Torah and healing class with this Rebetzin, with other people who have been through medical things, mostly people that had cancer. And I felt the learning was what really helped me and saved me. Knowledge is power. The more I learned, the more I felt powerful the more my soul was woken up and i felt in a sense that i could let go i always felt like i was in control i was like a control freak and i was able to just let go and just enjoy the ride in a sense and also at the time i met my husband and he was a big part of my healing and a big part of my journey and Like I mentioned, our relationship was so different than any other one in the past. And it was very, very soulful, very, very deep. We were really connected and he was so supportive. And we did it together and it was so fun. We learned so much. Like every night was a Fabrengan, you know, we'd come home. He was coming home from yeshiva. I came home from seminary and we would just talk for hours and just share. And it was amazing. I was only planning on staying in Israel for a year. I was studying in seminary, but I was also in university. I was doing a one-year study abroad program, but I ended up staying because I got engaged and my husband was in a two-year program. He was doing his master's. And so I had a whole year to really just, again, relax and enjoy and process what I went through. So God gave me all that precious time I needed when I was sick and then even after to just figure it all out in a sense. And I was very proactive of like kind of building myself up, knowing I was going to go back to Montreal and that real life was really going to kick in.
1: So then take us there to when real life kicked in. What connected you then to your soul? What grounded your Jewish learning when you came back to the life that you were used to?
0: So coming back to Montreal and applying everything I learned and really living a Jewish life, building a Jewish home with my husband everything I did and everything I continue to do, I really try to bring godliness in everything I do and to be very mindful from the second I wake up. Anyone that follows me on Instagram knows I wake up very, very early and it's like my time where I get grounded. I wake up around five o'clock and I journal and I meditate and I pray and I breathe and it's just my time. And so just doing what we're meant to be doing. I came back to Montreal and I was working at the Friendship Circle, which is an amazing organization. And it's a Lubavitch organization, a Chabad organization, and working there and being in a conducive environment for growth around such amazing people and doing such amazing work. And again, just really trying to do what the Rebbe wants us to do, to have an open home. Thank God me and my husband are blessed and we've had hundreds of guests come into our home. And by the way, I'm still a party girl because I said I was a party girl before I still am. So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> Nothing anyone <changed>. listening <laughs> to this podcast, they're always welcome in my home, but we have lots and lots of guests every week and I really enjoy it. And that's something really that gives me the strength to keep going. It's something I look forward to every week. And it's something I prepare for every week. Actually, after this podcast, I'm going to plan my menu and invite my guests because that's, you know, really just bringing Shabbos into the week. And... I just try as much it's as Monday, uh, by the way, for anyone listening, it's a Monday. I know I shouldn't give anyone anxiety. I sometimes do that, but
1: <laughs> no, I love it. But I just, you know, you could think it's Thursday night. You're like, it's Monday. <laughs> You're starting on Monday.
0: I know. But I always tell people like, if you, I want to have the best guests at my table. So it's like, you got to reserve them. You know, people are busy. So it's like, yeah. I need to reserve the guests and then like, know how many are coming and plan accordingly. And I work, so I have to be organized. But yeah, I think it's just really bringing heaven down to earth. Like really just whatever I learned, trying to apply it, whenever I'm going through something, think about how am I supposed to process this? What am I supposed to think? What am I supposed to do? But just really living a Jewish life. And by everything we do, I always say like mitzvah means connection. Every time we do a mitzvah, we're connecting. And I always want to be connected. So I'm always trying to do whatever I can to connect. So just living a godly life and being mindful of it. Like you know, so often, I worked at a seminary for a while. I was assistant to Mrs. Kalbach. And so many of these girls, they were amazing. And they would often say, like, why are you so inspired? Like, they couldn't understand it. And to me, it was just so obvious. We're both religious. We're both doing the same thing. Like, why? And I guess when you grew up with it, when you grow up with it, sometimes it could be robotic. And I always try to, like, challenge girls, especially girls I teach, because I teach colors, to really find it for yourself and to really connect with it. And not to be robotic, but from the second you wake up and you wash, when you say moda'ani, take that moment, take that moment to have gratitude. That was the Rebbe's favorite bracha. And I really just try that everything I go through and everything I do to connect it, to not just do it to do it. I really want to like reap the benefits. And also just whenever there's an opportunity that could connect me even more, I jump on it. So just recently, it's actually been a couple of years we're going on. Two and a half years. My husband and I started doing a Schluchis in Trois Rivière, which is about an hour and a half away from Montreal. It's a project out of the Montreal Tour Center. Rabbi New sent us. And it's exactly this idea of just being there for others, right? And that's what the Rebbe wanted. And I find for me, no matter what I'm going through, and now I think I shared with you that I have a father who's really not well. And going to Trois Rivière has been the best thing for me. That's my healing throughout this part of just really being there for others, even when we don't want to be, because that's what we're meant to do. We're meant to do. So just doing. <laughs> I remember like calling my Mashbi at the time and telling her that I'm really struggling. It was a very difficult time when I found that my dad was sick. It was a time where I was not even able to practice what I preach. And I was, again, like on this new journey of trying to Connect and to tap in, and it was hard. And I remember her saying to me, Just keep going, just keep doing. Until this day, that's what I do. <laughs> just keep going, you know? And I make the precious time to reflect and to think about things and to talk things through. But I do, I'm a doer. And I find that's been super helpful for me.
1: I was wondering if it's been difficult for you to maintain the inspiration that you experienced when you first became religious, when you first had your whole initial healing journey, grief journey, is that what your path has been to maintaining the inspiration? If not, has it been hard? What have the challenging moments, the dry spells of inspiration looked like and how have you moved through them?
0: So I've been very grateful that I really haven't had so many moments except for the moment when I found that my dad was very ill. That was a very difficult moment. But I knew what it was like not being from and not believing and how hard and painful that was. So I knew I couldn't return to that place. I knew, if anything, again, that if I'm in this very uncomfortable place, it means that there is so much room for growth. And it means that I have to connect even deeper. So, till this day, whenever I struggle and I'm human and I definitely have my struggles, what do I do? I connect even more. I really try hard to go deep. And to be honest, there's times that are hard and I don't see it as something that I lose inspiration. I just accept it. Like life is hard and we're meant to go through it. And I don't think Hashem's punishing me or he's not fair. Life is hard. And there's always light in darkness and we could always find it. Sometimes it's hard. And in those moments that it's too hard for me, I kind of just surrender to the pain. And I allow myself to go through it. And sometimes it's very healing, right? They say, when you cry, toxins come out. I cry a lot. (laughs) You know, it's very painful to watch my father go through what he's going through. He has Alzheimer's. He got it very, very young. And I've been actively building this toolkit toolbox. I always talk about my toolbox and I'm always building it and I'm always getting new tools and I'm always sharpening my tools. And sometimes the pain overtakes me and I just can't even open up the toolbox, but I allow myself to just go through it. It's like a wave. I allow myself to just go through the pain and tomorrow's a new day. But again, what's super helpful for me is just this like, you know, in psychology, it's like behavioral activation of just keep going. But in Judaism, it's mitzvahs of just doing what you're supposed to be doing. It's like we have our GPS and it guides us even in the most difficult times You know, that we have to do what we need to do. So I'm very mindful to just keep going. It's almost like a protection for me to keep going, to connect even more during those times. And I'm very vulnerable. And I find vulnerability has really helped me as well. To just reach out to the people I know are there for me. My Mishpia being one of them. My rabbi being another one. My friends, my family and really just building a community of support. And I find when you really put yourself out there and you connect with people on a soul level, that's the healing, that's what really helps. So I really try not to keep anything inside and to just remind myself that I'm human. And it's all part of this holy experience of life that we're gonna have our moments and we grow from them. And when I experience dark moments, I just remind myself that there is so much more light to come. Because I know that in my darkest moments from going through my grief with my friend Jackie and from going through cancer, that so much good came out of it and so much light. So I know whenever there's a painful moment, it just means that there's light about to come. I'm just waiting
1: for it. I'm patient. I wait, even if it's hard. I like that. Patience. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. What does the term that you are using, keep going, practically mean? Like, What does that look like? And On a day-to-day basis, when you are struggling, what does it mean to keep going?
0: To just never lose hope. To really just, you know, it's so easy to believe when things are going your way. But when things aren't going your way, sometimes you lose sight of it all. But I think that if you connect all the time, not just when times are tough, that you have this healthy relationship with yourself and with Hashem. And so that when you're going through a hard time, again, you just kind of Tell yourself, this is a hard time. This is a hard moment, but I'm totally equipped to deal with it. And Hashem only gives me the challenges that I can handle. And sometimes I get frustrated, like it's enough, Hashem, like it's enough, you know, I'm tired. But I tell myself that if I'm given this challenge, I'm going to rise above it. And I guess, especially being, you know, a little bit of a public figure and sharing a lot and speaking and going around and, you know, I bring a lot to so many young girls. I always feel like the more I go through the more experience and life experience I have to share with the world. And again, that connects me with people, right? And I'm always so grateful for those moments where we're all looking and yearning for connection. And the more you go through, the more people you're able to connect with. And so again, I'm grateful for that, that I'm able to be like empathetic and compassionate to a lot of people because I've gone through a lot of different things, you know, at such a young
1: age. I think it's precious to see your difficult life experiences as a vehicle for connection. Yeah. I like that. So, so much of your journey as a young person, losing your friend, going through your cancer journey now with your father and just like daily life has been about discovering and connecting to the fact that you have a soul and that your soul is real and you have a purpose and that the fact that you have a soul is not. A meaningless piece of information, but something that you literally pivoted your entire life to follow. Mm-hmm. What is your advice to anyone who has this sense that they have a soul? What advice do you give to anyone who is living a life, be it already a life of Torah or not, who feels like the fact that I have a soul is not random, is meaningful. How would you... Advise beginning a relationship with that soul or strengthening a relationship with that soul and making it a more relevant and real part of a person's life? So, I think to connect to your soul and connect
0: to yourself is by engaging in a real relationship with God. And that's doing what God wants us to do. And for us to do it, basimcha, right? I always say we have an obligation to be basimcha even in the most difficult times, which is hard, but it's a real obligation. So that means that in any given situation, no matter how dark it is, there's always something to be happy about and something to be grateful for. So I think to do mitzvahs besimcha, we need to learn about them. And we need to appreciate them. And sometimes they might not make sense to us. And sometimes they might seem really difficult and challenging. But sometimes we need to find our own personal connection to them. And to really just work on the trust that God gave us the Torah as a gift, it's a gift. And we need to unwrap it and we need to learn it. And it's meant to serve us. And, you know, the Yitzhahara, the evil inclination often comes in, right? And pushes us away from that truth. But if we really trust that everything he gave us is for the ultimate good and to make our lives more meaningful and more enriched, then we wanna do it, we're excited about it. And we're able to do it by simcha. So I think one mitzvah also leads to the next mitzvah. And that's really what happened with me. I did it very slowly. I processed one mitzvah I was going through, you know, Shabbos for example. And then I wanted to learn about the next thing and it becomes contagious. And I think also it's so important to surround yourself with like-minded people that are positive, and are there to lift you up and elevate you and love you and care for you and you really feel a sense of support and to find that community that lights you up. I'm so grateful that I have the most wonderful community and I love everyone and it's really amazing and I find that's been so helpful for me. This sense of community and I felt it from the get go when I got sick right? At the time, it was just the Ganavishes. That was my community. It's a big one though. And they were always reaching out to me and they were always there for me and baking challah for me in my honor and visiting me and sending me food and changing the mezuzahs in my house. And all that really was such a big part of my healing. So I really think just taking action and finding your purpose. And how do we find our purpose is by really connecting to our true selves then we know we're more self-aware and we know what we're meant to do and what we want to do. And then we also live a purposeful life that we really enjoy. And we're excited to wake up at
1: (laughs) 5am. I love what you said about community. If you want to be connected to your soul, then being part of a community, a soulful community Mm -hmm. is something that really allows you to gain clarity on that because we live in a world that doesn't fully acknowledge our souls. Something that you have been consistently emphasizing is connection. If we never connect with people on that soul level, then we begin to doubt our own feeling of soul. But if we're able to connect with people in that way. Yeah, absolutely. And
0: I think it's just, I'm the type of person when something feels uncomfortable, I need to work through it right away. I like to be comfortable. So whenever I feel pain or I feel sadness or something doesn't make sense to me or something doesn't resonate with me, I deal with it right away. I'll call my rabbi, I'll make an appointment with Rabbi New, and I'll go through it with him. And I'm very proactive in that way. Like even when my dad got sick, like right away became part of a support group. And right away, I took a death and dying course actually through JLI, which was amazing. That again, was so helpful. Just learning more about the soul Mm. and that the soul lives on and appreciating the soul and the person and connecting. And even my father now, like I'm connecting with him on a very deep level, even though he's not all there, his body, even, you know, people think of Alzheimer's that their mind goes, but he has a condition that affects his body as well. But I try as much as possible to be present with him and to enjoy these moments. And I think also when you go through an experience of losing a friend, having cancer, knowing you're losing your father, you don't take anything for granted. And I always say, we shouldn't live this way, that we feel like we're about to lose something and we have to, it's so fragile. But when we really take a step back, we realize that anything can happen. And when you feel like it could be your last moment, you appreciate things so much more. And I'm human. I sometimes lose that inspiration and I, you know, might get annoyed with nonsense. It <laughs> How <happens>. could you? <laughs> I do. I do. It happens. Of course. I sometimes always say, I'm like, I find those little things that creep in on me every day. Those little struggles are sometimes so much mm. harder than like big things for me. Sure. Like my kids fighting is the biggest trigger for me. Like I can't, it's too emotional for me. <laughs> I have zero tools to deal with it. I cry, can't handle it. Like... I definitely have my moments where, you know, I struggle with little things here and there. But I really, I find when I'm in my darkest moments, actually, and I have the most pain, I sometimes close my eyes and I bring myself back to that place when I found that I had cancer. Because it felt like this elevated moment where all of a sudden, things were so clear. And I really realized right then and there, what was important and what wasn't. It's like when you think about the day-to-day things that get to us or bother us, oh, I heard this person said this, and this is so ridiculous, and did you hear? It's like, no, nothing affected me. And for so long, actually, I felt invincible, like nothing affected me. Nothing could get in my way. And then over time, you kind of lose those, I want to say, like spiritual muscles. So when I feel like I'm losing it, I try to rebuild it and get stronger and stronger, you know? And of course, you have those moments that bring you down. And then again, you got to get back up. It's like I always use that analogy of like, you know, people that go to the gym and they build their strong muscles. They can't just stop going to the gym no matter how good they look. So I feel like it's the same thing for me. No matter how inspired I am, it's ongoing and there's so much to learn and I want to learn more. It's exciting for me. I always sometimes feel like I don't have enough time. There's so much I want (laughs) to learn. There's so much what I want to do, you know? So... It's this ongoing journey, right?
1: And yeah, it's the journey of life. So you're still an energizer bunny, but now you're a soulful energizer bunny. (laughs) I love that. Yeah, Yeah, kind of.
0: Yeah? (laughs) Kind of. But you know, it's like my work of always trying to be less busy. That's always something I struggled with. Like I'm always busy, busy, busy. And still to this day, especially, you know, being a Lubavitcher, there's always so much opportunity. There's always something to do.
1: Yeah, you know, like I have
0: friends who aren't religious, and sometimes they're like, "Oh, I'm so bored." I'm like, "I don't even know what that means." Like, how could you be bored? There's so much to do. There's, you know, if I turn on my phone, there's this to and to do, and big hello for this person, and you know how it is. This one needs to come for Shabbos. This one wants to learn, and it's amazing. But sometimes I've learned to say no because sometimes I feel like I'm getting back to that place where I become Mm -hmm. that Energizer Bunny, and I'm going and I'm going. And I'm not taking that precious moment to reflect. And I really believe we all need that time, that those moments are so precious. That's where we're able to listen to that inner voice that gets silenced. And that's Mm -hmm. when we really connect to the soul in those quiet moments. And that soul kind of talks to us and tells us what we need and what we want to do and what we should be doing. We kind of have that clarity in those moments. It's those present moments, those quiet moments.
1: So once you've been speaking about just doing as a way of getting through challenging times, but in Mm -hmm. order to be able to do that intentionally, you're saying knowing how to slow down and listen so that you can actually give to the world in a way that is intentional and is thoughtful and is reflective of your soul.
0: Absolutely. And just like being true to yourself. You can only be true to yourself when you have a real relationship with yourself and you know what yourself needs and what it wants. So you need to take those
1: precious moments. What's interesting is that sometimes God gives them to us. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes we get to choose them on our own, but in your case, you didn't choose it and it, it chose you, but then it ended up being your gift.
0: Absolutely. And I, I feel even till this day, a sense of responsibility that I went through what I went through and I'm going through what I'm going through to share with the world. And I feel like that's my personal mission. And sometimes it's very hard. Sometimes it's uncomfortable. Sometimes, I don't know, you know, getting in front of people and just sharing and being so vulnerable is not always easy. But I remind myself it's not about me. I went through this for a reason. And I literally feel charged with a mission and purpose. And again, before I was religious, I really didn't know what I was going to do. I kind of always felt like, oh my goodness, I'm never going to make it in life. Like, I'm never going to be that lawyer, that doctor, right? That's really the value system. And I kind of always felt like I wasn't enough. And interesting enough, what I loved doing was always helping people and being there for others. I actually got an award when I was a young girl as who did the most community service. I loved going to the hospital and visiting people. It was just natural for me. And so then when I became a Lubavitcher and learned about what we do and what we're expected to do and what's good for us, it felt right. It felt so natural. The whole journey just felt so real and so natural, like I felt like I arrived where I'm supposed to be. And now I'm still learning, you know? And often people will come up to me and they'll ask me certain questions. I'm like, I have no clue. They're like, how do you not know? I'm like, I'm still learning. There is so much to learn. And I find it exciting. You know, sometimes like there's Balchuvas that are like nervous or they feel uncomfortable that they don't know. I'm like, I'm totally cool with it. It's it's part of it all. I can't expect to know what someone that grew up in Base Rivka knew. But it's connecting again to those people and learning from them and them helping me along my journey that helps me connect even more.
1: Thank you, Amanda. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for showing up to give of that part of yourself and being a reminder that we are souls and that means something in our lives. And we could be connected to that throughout our lives, not just by virtue of our habits, but in a really intentional and
0: meaningful
1: way. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, I want to invite you to leave a rating or a review. It helps other people find the podcast. And you know, we're all about getting a citizen to every corner of the world. I also want to invite you, if you really loved it, to share it with a friend who you think might love it too. If you would like to sponsor an episode, you can reach out to us at humanandholy at gmail.com. To give to Human and Holy in any amount, visit humanandholy.com slash sponsor. You can follow us on Instagram at humanandholy, and you can stay up to date with everything we do by signing up for our newsletter on humanandholy.com. Thank you for listening, and I hope you have a wonderful day.